Join me in a word of prayer as we begin. Lord, we give you thanks for your scriptures, Lord, even when they, they challenge us. Lord, we pray that you would show us those things in our hearts that are not honoring to you and that we would trust in you to make us clean. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for those of you who are here for, for braving the storm. We are very much going to remember our neighbors on the Gulf Coast, especially in Louisiana, as the storm Ida approaches. Um, and so as part of you coming to church and braving the weather, um, I've got a Father Mark spoke last week about some of the hard sayings in Scripture, and we've kind of got another hard saying for us. But before we kind of dig into this hard saying a little bit, um, I want to I ask you a question, and it's also kind of a, a hard question to ask. Um, the question I want to ask you is, have you ever judged a church worship service by the songs in the bulletin or maybe who is preaching? I know... I have, and when I was thinking about this, it actually made me think about my experience as a college student. Um, I went to a, a Christian school, so one of the things that came with that was we had mandatory three-day-a-week chapel services, and we had a pretty strict chapel attendance policy. I think in a semester, you were allowed to miss six chapels altogether for whatever reason, whether that was sickness or you needed to study for a test or you slept in or whatever it was. And if you went over that amount, there were kind of some, some ramifications of that. I think it started with you might have to register late for classes, so you may not get the classes that you wanted. Or um, I think if you were on a sports team, you might have been on a probationary period. And if your chapel attendance didn't come up the next semester, then you might not be able to participate in the sports stuff. So um, I think even if you came late, it would count as half a skip. They actually would take attendance. They had a diagram of the chapel and all the seats, and you could see if someone was there or not, and they would check your box and let you know if you were there. Um, I had some friends I knew of who, you know, maybe they were getting close to the end of the semester, and they might have five skips, so they might have even asked or I think in one or two instances paid someone to sit in their seat so that they wouldn't be counted absent. There was always this fortuitous moment when we had our visiting students day, prospective students, and they didn't know and they might come and sit in your seat, and that was a glorious day because you were then counted as present, even if you didn't have to be there. Um, so chapel was kind of this... Um, this important thing in the life of our school, but I think it was something that was really easy for me to take for granted if my heart wasn't in the right place about it. Well, one of the things about the school that I went to is it was a non-denominational school, so the chaplain was really intentional, I think in a good way now, looking back on it with some more wisdom, about saying that, you know, we have a variety of denominations represented in our school. We want to make sure that we're not just worshiping in one way that only fits one group of students, so there was a lot of variety that would happen, but me and my all of my 18-year-old wisdom, I would often roll my eyes or kind of tune out something that I didn't think was cool or that I didn't like or maybe was unfamiliar to me. I may or may not have even fallen asleep on a few occasions in chapel. Not that anyone ever has fallen asleep in church before, right? Um, but I say all that because there is a particular chapel instance that sticks out in my mind that I wanted to share with you. Um, 
something that had happened in a chapel service one day, and it must have either really bothered me or bored me because I remember um, going to the cafeteria that evening for dinner that night, and my group of friends, we were talking about the chapel service that day, and we were talking about it, and I, I think I remember, the funny thing is, right, now, I don't remember what it was that bothered me, so I clearly wasn't that big of a deal, but something I didn't like about the service. So I think I was complaining about it to my friends. And one of my friends, because he was a good friend, he kind of challenged me. And he said, Taylor, do you think it's possible that chapel today maybe wasn't for you, but maybe somebody else still met God in the midst of it? And that really took me aback. Right, all my self-righteousness about how I think God should be worshipped or whatever that was in my 18-year-old mind, right? I was pushed back on, I think, in a really good and helpful way to say, you know, is there something else, right? Was the Lord being worshipped, right? And, and I knew, and my friend told me that something positive that he took away from that service that the Lord was doing in his heart. And I remember that because from there on, even if it was difficult for me to engage, I would at least try. It reminded me that, you know, or if, or if I had a hard time engaging, I might look around the service and see, are there some people who are connecting with God? And just even in that moment, you say, you know, if this isn't for me, but if that person is getting something out of this, as the Lord is doing something in their heart, well, then that should be good enough for me in this moment, right? Not every service needs to be about me because Worship is supposed to be about God, about uh, not about us, right? That seems like that's a fairly simple thing to grasp, but we can forget that so often. Um, I think our gospel passage today is at least in part about us putting off our own sense of human selfishness and self-righteousness when we meet the Lord in worship of God. I think right when we're so concerned about ourselves and our own sense of self-righteousness, whatever that means, I think, right, we can put God into this little box. And if he doesn't fit neatly into that box that we've constructed, it, we're, we're apt to complain or, or check out or whatever. And I want to make sure we, we connect the dots here. I'm not just talking about this hour on Sunday morning when we worship or maybe a midweek service, Right. Worship of God involves every moment of our lives, the whole of who we are. And so I think what Jesus is warning us to do is to not maybe firstly blame the external things around us, but really we should be taking stock of our own, the state of our own hearts, right? We should be saying, Lord, what are you doing in me? Is there, there's, yes, there are a lot of things that are not right in the world, but, you know, am I immune to that? No. So I think this morning I want us to examine Jesus' assessment of what really defiles us and also take a look at our uh, passage in Ephesians, this kind of well-known passage of the armor of God and see what the armor of God might say in the midst of all that. So again, Mark 7, we see Jesus immediately, right, coming into conflict, as he so often does, with the Pharisees, some of the religious teachers of the day. The Pharisees, in this particular instance, they're critical of the manner in which Jesus' followers were not washing their hands 
correctly, uh, the first thing that we should note is that in ancient Jewish times of the day, there was not full-scale, like, understanding and interpretation of how the ritual purity laws were to work. There were several interpretations, degrees, and things like that. So you've kind of got a problem with the Pharisees, right, for pushing their own interpretation at a higher level than what they know is out there that other religious schools of thought were believing. Um, but, and, right, we see the Pharisees being very much sticklers, right? They've got a very particular, methodical way of hand-washing. If they were alive in our times, right, they could probably do a great commercial for the CDC about, ho- about proper hand-washing technique, right? How, how to do all of it, right? Sing your ABCs or something like that. Um, and the Pharisees were known for this. They were known for being not just rule followers, but rule followers who would add rules to protect the rules that they were trying to follow so that the rules would never be violated. And those rules could be put onto such a high level that it would create this sense of self-righteousness. I think in their attempts to keep the law, even if they were good intentions, the Pharisees were still missing the heart of God in the midst of that, right? They were so attached to their understanding that they missed the law, right? We saw this in, in, in the Deuteronomy law. The law of God is supposed to show the heart of God, but this fast adherence to interpretation missed the heart of the message. And so Jesus pushes this a little bit further, right? He illustrates this with this kind of obscure practice called Corbin or this giving of things to God. What it was is you could will your estate or your assets to God and the temple. And what's the problem here, though? What is Jesus criticizing? Because, right, because Corbin is not a thing that the Bible commands. It was a practice, and it might have, on face value, right, it might look good, right, giving these things to God. But Jesus' criticism comes from the people who would will their things to God but would then neglect to maybe perhaps take care of an aging parent or their neighbor in need and say, hey, I've willed this stuff to God. I don't have anything for you. Sorry, you're going to be hungry or sick, right? And we can see the hypocrisy there. What does Jesus do? He, he quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, these people are honoring God with their lips, with the things that they're saying or they think that they're doing, but their hearts, right? are far from God. They've missed what God is really about. When we, when we get sucked into this, right, we can be left with these empty gestures of, of self-righteousness. But Jesus goes even further, right? He has this hard saying, this parable about it's not the things that are outside of us that defile us or make us unclean, but it's actually the things that we already have on the inside. So before we kind of try to unpack that a little bit, I want to guard against, I think, two possible interpretations that I think can miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Um, The first thing we should note is that Jesus is not saying, when he's saying that it's not the things outside that can defile us, he's not saying that anything goes, right? Never once has Jesus explicitly rejected the Mosaic law. What he's rejected is particular interpretations of the law, right? Do we see, are we seeing the difference here? Um, Here's a silly illustration 
but I think you'll get the point. If I were to believe this, right, it would not make a lot of sense for me to go send my now three-year-old daughter to the movies to go see an R-rated movie because there's nothing on the outside that could maybe defile her or influence her, right? That doesn't make any sense. We know that that's not how the world works. So what is Jesus getting at when he says that? So that's temptation number one. I think the law can be used to restrain, right, to hold back certain forms of evil, but the law was never meant to eliminate evil altogether. But at the same time, on the other hand, Jesus is being really clear that we can get so concerned with ritual or that the way things should be that we can miss the state of our own hearts and also miss the state of God's heart. I think what we can never forget is that there is the capacity for sin and to disregard in each and every one of us, in you, in me, in us, right? Our hearts, if we just follow them perhaps blindly, we can desire things that might be good in and of themselves, but when we start to desire them above God, we get things all out of whack, and that can lead us down these sinful paths of destruction that end up in the list of vices that Jesus mentions at the end, and so part of what Jesus is asking us to do, and I think what part of what following Jesus looks like, it's examining our own hearts and not just immediately assuming that it's the other people out there who are the problem, right? There might be some things in us that are off that we need to take stock of, to repent of, to course correct so that we can be following the Lord better. I do want to pause and acknowledge that I think it can be easy to hear this teaching from Jesus as not good news, right? This sounds really negative, right? Our hearts are full of defilement, womp womp, right? And all these terrible things that are happening. But we have to kind of see the bigger picture of Jesus' teaching to understand where the good news lies here, right? Here's what, the, here's what I will submit is the good news in this passage, it's Jesus taking stock of the situation and saying, yes, there is evil in the world. Yes, there might even be sin in your own heart. But here's the good news. Jesus sees the sin that is in our hearts, the worst of who we are, the things that we think, the actions that we do, and that does not push Jesus away, right? That's what the gospel is. Even in the depths of who we are, Jesus is not not repelled by that. But he actually draws near, and he draws near to heal us, to bring us wholeness and restoration. But here's the catch, right? We have to be brave enough to confront those ugly things within ourselves and not just assume that's someone out there, right? That there is work that the Lord needs to do in our heart. There might be sin. There might be things we need to root out. We have to confess where we've gone off track. But we've never wandered so far from God that we're utterly lost, right? The Lord is there even in the midst of our sin. He draws near. Jesus is in the business of healing. So here's where I think this Ephesians passage comes into play, right? The armor of God. If you've been around the church for a while, this is probably a pretty familiar passage. I have memories growing up in the church of, I think, doing like a VBS that was themed after the armor of God, something like that. 
Um, I even found on the internet a, a children's play night costume that was branded as the armor of God, but then I thought about it a little bit more, and I, I didn't think that you needed a demonstration of what the armor of God looked like. You know, maybe I'll, I'll leave that for youth group. Um, but I think there's also this gut level association we have with the armor of God, right? We think about the armor of God, and we think about going into battle. And there might be an aspect to that, but I think if we look closely at Paul's description of the armor, right, he describes six pieces. Five of the six are for defensive purposes, right? I think there's kind of this more defensive aspect, right, of protecting ourselves, right, of, of trusting in who God is so that we can repel the forces of evil both without and maybe even perhaps within us, right? Because here's, I think, where there's maybe a temptation that isn't helpful that gets back onto the self-righteousness thing, right? If we think we've got the armor of God on and we're geared up for battle, we can maybe forget that there are things in us too, right, that maybe aren't of God, right? And we can maybe think that we're made bulletproof by this armor. But what's really interesting is most of these pieces of armor they're actually descriptions of God. You can find almost every single piece of this armor described of God in the book of Isaiah in different areas. Um, I can give you the ref references later, but I just thought that was an interesting thing. Um, so here, let's take a quick look at the armor of God because I think it'll help illustrate this idea for me a little bit. Uh, I think the idea, right, is God is giving his people the tools they need, right, not to wipe out their foes to vanquish their enemies, but rather to fight off the evil in the world with the help of God, right? They're given that armor precisely because they're not able to do it alone. And I think actually Paul's life is a really good example of how the armor of God works, right? If we remember some of Paul's story, he started off as Saul, as this zealous Christian killer, right? But when he meets Jesus, what happens? he doesn't take up that armor to kill his enemies anymore. Rather, instead, he takes that armor up and he preaches peace to everyone, even his enemies, right? Paul is writing this letter, you see it referenced at the end of the passage, in prison, in change, right? That, that's a different way, I think, of inhabiting the armor of God that I I find compelling in this, right? It's not about us destroying those who would oppose us, but actually saying the Lord can work in our midst to maybe destroy the evil, right? That's what Paul says we're fighting against. We're fighting against evil that's out there, but we're not destroying people, perhaps. Maybe the Lord can still work and redeem those situations as improbable as they might see. So here's what it looks like to be equipped by God. Belt, the belt of truth. So in the ancient days, they would use the belt and they would actually use the belt to tie up their tunics, right? Because they kind of ran to their feet in not very good battle gear. So the belt was designed to kind of tie up your tunic so you could run and, and be nimble if you needed to. I think, right, remember that being surrounded by the truth about God and the truth about world, that can help us to sustain attacks and opposition. Nextly, right, the breastplate of righteousness. Note, it's not the breastplate of our righteousness, right? It's the breastplate of God's righteousness, God's goodness, God's justice and mercy. That's what we have to 
hold on to, right? Again, this is that warning, I think, against the self-righteousness that Jesus is talking about in Mark 7. The shield of faith, right? I got this picture in my mind of this, this big Roman shields, right? And you shield with a shield, right? You can almost like hide behind it. When we think about shield of faith, right? You're trusting that that shield is going to do its job. Right? You're t- trusting that you can make baby little steps hiding behind that shield. And for me, that's little steps of faith in our life, right? To trust God, to have faith, to not just believe in our heads, but to believe with the whole of who we are. Interestingly, right, these Roman shields that they would have been talking about, they were really big. And they were actually designed to kind of intermesh so a whole legion could walk behind the shield. I like this picture a lot of thinking about the shield isn't just protecting me, but it's protecting those around me, right? When I walk with confidence and we all walk with confidence, even in small steps with faith, we're protecting one another in this confidence that we have from the Lord, right? The helmet of salvation, One of the images that popped into my mind when I was thinking about the helmet of salvation was the way that we mark those who are baptized with the sign of the cross on their heads, right? They're reminded of their salvation in the Lord, and that is what is going to protect them. And lastly, right, the sword. Yes, the sword can be used to cut, right? The scripture is clear that that's one of the uses of the swords, right, in in Hebrew, right? But I think about it more as perhaps cutting away those things in our life that are not of God, right? That's what the sword is really designed to do. It's not designed to injure. The sword is designed to maybe purify as we're going to sing later, right? It refines us into people who know the heart of God. I think the last thing I want to note as we're closing is that this armor is mentioned strongly within the context of prayer, right? The community must be gathered together in prayer, making these actions of faith, right? But also trusting the Lord in the midst of it. What it reminded me of as I was thinking about the prayer is our collect for purity on page two, right? We open every service. And again, right, this is where we have to warn ourselves against the the dangers of unengaged ritual, right? You can say the collect for purity, and not mean a word of it. But what would your life look like if you actually stopped and genuinely prayed the cause for purity? Let me, let, me, let me read it to us again and pray it and listen to the words and think about how it might speak into what we're talking about here in Mark 7. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from you, no secrets are hid, right? Again, this admission that, Lord, you know the depths of who I am, the good and the bad. You see that clearly, right? And here's the powerful part of the prayer for me. Cleanse the thoughts of, your heart, of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, right? Cleanse me, Lord, right? Make me more pure. Make me in your, more and more in your image that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I think in prayer, right, we are not only asking God for things and thanking God for things, but I think when we pray in the way that the call for purity asks us to, over time, I think we actually begin to take on the heart and character of God. 
right? And then as we take that on, we live that out. That's what I think the law was supposed to do from the get-go. So as, as I was prepare, preparing for this sermon this week, I kind of wanted to leave us with a couple thoughts and questions that were really convicting to me. One of the first things that I had to ask myself is, what's the condition of my heart, right? Before I'm worried about everything that's happening around me, right, do I know where my heart is before the Lord? Does my heart reflect God's heart? If it doesn't, why not? Right? That's a hard question to ask, right? Another one of these hard sayings of Jesus. But I think it's crucial for the kind of transformation that Jesus wants to work in our lives. Are there attitudes towards others that I need to stop and repent of? Are these things things that I maybe believe intellectually? Or is this something that I'm actively living out, right? Is this more than just a feel-good thing for the drive home on Sunday? Is this something that I'm wrestling with, right? Fighting day in and day out, right? The Lord has given us armor to equip us for that battle, but we have to take that on. I think God has given us this armor precisely so that we can ask these questions and trust him. And I think when we do trust him with this, our worship becomes less about us and the things that we, we want and desire and more and more about loving God and about loving others to his glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.